Let us pray. Father, help us now to pay attention to Your Word, to heed Your Word, to take it to heart. Father, help us to believe the good news presented to us in the Scriptures as they point us to Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living Lord and King and the Savior, the One who is our righteousness. And Father, we pray that Your transforming work would be uh, by Your Spirit would happen today as well. That we would be made more and more like Christ Jesus in every way. That You would conform our desires and our thoughts and our words and our actions to Your Word. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are rapidly approaching the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's going to happen this October. Uh, we'll join with Protestants from all over the world in rejoicing over the great recovery of the Gospel that took place in the 16th century and the huge impact it had upon millions and millions of men, women, and children, and indeed the huge impact it had on our civilization. We owe so much to those God raised up in the 16th century to recover the Gospel. We've been spending the last few weeks looking at the doctrine of justification by faith because if there is any doctrine that really defines the Reformation, this is it. It is the core doctrine of the Reformation. This is why the power of the Gospel was unleashed in a new way in the 16th century. We camped out here in Luke chapter 18 in this parable because Jesus here tells us a story that really captures the heart of the matter. This parable, this story, takes place in the temple. And it's a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's a story about a Pharisee who we know trusted in himself for justification and who therefore despised others. Luke tells us that in his introduction to the story. Uh, and as the story unfolds, you can see this Pharisee is very impressed with himself. Uh, yes, his prayer does thank God. He pays lip service to God's grace. But the focus of the prayer is the self. It's a selfie prayer, if I can call it that. Uh, he mentions God once, and then it's I, I, I. Indeed, he mentions I five times in two verses. Uh, it's all about him. He has rendered his own verdict over his life. He has declared himself righteous. He is boasting in himself. He is exalting himself. He's like a student rating his own test, giving himself an A+, and then showing it off to the teacher. But on that day, there was also a tax collector in the temple. A man who, quite frankly, made his life ripping other people off. That's how the system worked in those days. But this is a man who has come to God. He's come to God's house. And he's come with no claim to his own righteousness. He's come to claim God's mercy. He has no self-righteousness, only self-despair. He knows he cannot justify himself and he does not trust himself. Instead, he looks to God's mercy. He puts the words of David from Psalm 51 on his own lips, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He is trusting God's mercy to justify him, to forgive him, to, to set him in a right relationship. And he is the one Jesus tells us, who goes home justified, not the Pharisee, not the religious professional, but the scandalous tax collector. And then Jesus gives his commentary on the story. We find that the Pharisee has exalted himself. 
And so he'll be humbled. He'll be brought low. The publican humbled himself, and so he will go home exalted. He will be vindicated and glorified. You have a clear contrast here. A contrast between a man who justifies himself by his works, works righteousness you could call it, and a man who is justified by a humble faith. who receives a gift of righteousness. That's what we could call it. Gift righteousness. Ultimately, of course, God's gift of righteousness is Jesus Christ. We are justified in Him, the just one. He is the answer to all our prayers for mercy. God shows us mercy in Christ and what He does on our behalf. His sacrifice on the cross, His blood shed covers our sins. His resurrection from the dead is, yes, His vindication and His exaltation, but our vindication and exaltation as well. He was put to death in our place, the innocent for the guilty, and He was raised to life again to secure our acquittal. We are vindicated and declared righteous in Him. We are righteous in the righteous One. Because Christ Jesus has humbled Himself, He has been exalted, and we are exalted in union with Him. And that means we are fully and freely forgiven of all our sins. It means all accusations against you, if you're in Christ Jesus, all accusations against you have been answered and silenced. It means you are vindicated and delivered from all your enemies and oppressors. Now, the Reformation in the 16th century was largely about a man named Martin Luther making this discovery, making the same plea for mercy as the tax collector and discovering the same gift of righteousness as the tax collector in this story. What I want to do this morning is work out for you some, certainly not all, we can never get to all of the implications of this teaching, but I want to work out some of the implications here, which I think we see in this story, and of course they're fleshed out more fully for us in the rest of Scripture. So we'll look at three. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, but we'll talk about three altogether. What does it mean to be justified? What does the justified life look like? What does it mean to be righteous in Christ? It means three things. You have a new identity, a new community, and a new joy. So let's talk about each one of those things. Justification by faith gives us a new identity. Once you are found righteous in Christ Jesus, once you know that you are affirmed and accepted in Christ, you know, it really doesn't matter what anyone says about you. You're not going to be crushed by their criticisms. You're not going to be trapped by their expectations. You're not going to be a slave to the opinions others have of you. You're not going to be controlled by their judgments about you. Remember what the Pharisees said to Jesus in Matthew 22? They came to Him and they said, Teacher, we know you teach the way of God and do not care what anyone thinks. Why did Jesus not care what anyone thought of Him? Because He knew He was righteous. And when we are in Christ Jesus, we are righteous also, and we don't have to be a slave to other people's opinions of us. Now why is this? Why does justification free us from other people's opinions of us? Why does it free us from slavery to having to be a people pleaser all the time? Because when you're justified, you realize that the most important opinion of you is God's opinion. And God's opinion is that you are righteous. 
God's verdict over you is that you are righteous. And any other verdict anybody passes over you is never going to matter nearly as much as that. That is the heaviest and the weightiest word over your life. Pronouncement over your life of them all. Even more than your parents or your spouse or your friends or anybody else. Nothing anybody else can say about you is as important as what God has said about you in Christ. God's verdict over you trumps even your feelings. It's interesting here, isn't it? Jesus pronounced the Pharisee guilty even though he felt righteous. And the tax collector feels guilty, but he's the one who is pronounced righteous, who goes home justified. In our culture, we put so much stock in our feelings. Indeed, we let feelings determine our identity. Feelings outweigh facts. But that's simply wrong. That's not true. That's not the way it should work. Here we see it is the fact of God's declaration over you that matters most. And we should actually seek to conform our feelings to that reality. If God says you are righteous, who are you to argue with God? When God says you are righteous, you should say, Amen. Yes. God's verdict over your life gives you a new status, a new identity. You no longer have to try to justify your existence to yourself or to others. And you know, justification really is the central question of our existence. And thankfully, God in Christ has answered that question for us. See, again, God's justification in Christ by faith through His mercy sets us free from any and all programs of self-justification. See, really, what are all attempts at self-justification? They're really just attempts to create our own identity, to create our own worth, instead of receiving our identity and worth as a gift that comes from outside of us, we try to create it for ourselves. And that's just a burden none of us can really bear. In justifying us, God affirms us. He gives us the affirmation we all crave. See, we simply must be affirmed. We can't live without affirmation. We hunger for affirmation. We know that children who grow up without any affirmation always have incredibly difficult problems to overcome because we are so desperate for affirmation. We hunger for it. We need it the same way we need air and water. And we'll do anything to get it. And so if we won't find our affirmation in Christ, we'll do just about anything to find affirmation elsewhere. I think that uh, 1980s movie, Chariots of Fire, uh, is a good illustration of this. It's about two track athletes, uh, one who's Jewish and one who's Christian. And at one point, the Jewish runner, Harold Abraham, uh, describes his reason for running this way. This is why he competes and trains so hard in track. He says, I've got ten seconds to justify my existence. So he couldn't really enjoy running because running wasn't just about running. It was his identity. His whole identity was wrapped up in how fast he could run. But then you've got the Christian Eric Liddell. It's actually based on a true story. And Eric Liddell did go on to be uh, a missionary and did some wonderful work for the Lord's kingdom. But he said this. He said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He could run for the sheer joy of running because he didn't feel pressure to validate his existence on the track. He, he found that affirmation, that, that, that deepest affirmation and acceptance in Christ, not in his 100-yard dash time, 
being a successful track star wasn't about proving himself. It wasn't about creating an identity. It was rather all about enjoying God's gift. He says, God made me fast. And so he just could enjoy being a fast runner. But he didn't have to try to prove himself and validate himself that way. Take another example of this. I read an interview. This was several years back, but uh, came to mind as I was getting ready for this sermon. Uh, an interview with the movie director, Sidney Pollack, who I think has passed away now, but towards the end of his life, he said he had to keep making movies because movies justified his existence. This famous movie director, he said, every time I finish a picture, this is a quote, every time I finish a picture, I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I have earned my stay for another year or so. I don't know what use I have other than that. You hear what he's saying here? Think about the logic of this. He's saying, I keep making movies because that is how I validate my existence. That is how I earn my existence. Now, I don't see how that could possibly work. How could making a movie earn existence? It seems like you've got to have existence first and then you can make movies. You've got to have the gift of life given to you first. You can't earn that gift and then you can go do something with it. But for Pollock, making movies was not just about using gifts God had given to him to inspire and entertain. No, it was about creating self-worth. It was about justifying his existence. It was about earning another year of life and breath. And I guess the fact that he died proves that he didn't continue to justify his existence. That self-justification program failed in the end. He couldn't do enough to earn another year. Or think about how many major executives have been caught lying on their resumes in recent years. You wonder, you know, why would anybody do this? Especially somebody who's already high profile and successful. Why would anyone feel pressure to make themselves look better than they really are? I mean, why not just be comfortable with who you are and with what you've done? Why not just be satisfied with that? I think that, you know, the saddest story of this I know of is, uh, I remember, it's probably like 15 years ago, but George O'Leary uh, was hired for his dream job. Uh, he was hired to coach Notre Dame's football team. And uh, he'd already been a successful coach. Now he gets, you know, really the best job. You can tell by his name, O'Leary. This is where he'd want to coach, right? right Notre Dame. Uh, this was the pinnacle for him. Okay, you know how long he had that job? Five days. And he had to resign because they found a uh, something on his resume that didn't uh, match up when they started to investigate. Uh, he said on his resume that he had claimed, his resume he claimed to have played college football for three years at New Hampshire, when in reality he had never actually played a damn. Now why lie about that? Why lie about having played football at New Hampshire of all places <laughs> years and years ago? What difference does it really make? Well, he felt pressure to validate himself, to prove himself. And this was part of that. But, you know, don't pick on him. We all feel that same pressure. That pressure to look good. That pressure to be loved, to be accepted, to be affirmed, to be praised, to be validated in the eyes of others. We all live under this pressure. Pressure to measure up, to, to craft an attractive identity for ourselves. But of course we learn because we see how this fails again and again. This is no way to live. Indeed, indeed it dooms us to a life of misery. 
You get on this treadmill of self-justification, trying to validate yourself, and you can never get off. All attempts at self-justification lead to self-doubt because you can never do enough. And so eventually they lead to self-despair. Certainly there are good uses of social media, but I think a lot of social media uh, is used just this way. Social media is full of people who are trying to justify themselves. I mean, how many of you can really live up to your Facebook profile? I mean, really? I mean, that is our modern day version of justification by works, right? Living up to your, your, your social media profile. A lot of social media is just people searching for justification. They're searching for validation and affirmation. They feel justified or not in the moment based on how many likes or comments they get. That's where their self-worth is found. That's how they validate themselves or not. I just read an article this week about teenage girls who post videos of themselves asking the question, am I beautiful? And the people will answer the question in the comments. Okay? You hear about something like that, you know, teenage girls posting videos of themselves asking that question, am I beautiful? It seems so desperate, so insecure. It's sad, really. But again, it's the same kind of thing we all do to one degree or another. We want to be loved. We want to be declared worthy. We want to be declared beautiful. We all feel like we are on trial every single day unless, unless we find rest in Christ and know that His beauty and His worth and His righteousness is shared with us. See, the only way out of this maze, the only way out of this trap of self-justification is to know the verdict that the Father passed over Jesus is now shared with us as well. That Jesus has stood trial for us. And He came through the ordeal of His trial righteous, vindicated by His Father, and we are righteous in Him. And so if you're in Christ, it's like God's pressing the like button over your life again and again. right? He's validating your existence, saying you're in Christ Jesus, you are righteous. But see, if you don't find your beauty and your worth and your righteousness in Christ, if you don't find your identity in Christ, you are going to go on an endless and fruitless quest to find those things elsewhere. And these programs of self-justification never work. Remember last week I, I, I shared with you Luther's marriage illustration of justification? It's such a beautiful way of thinking about justification. Of course, really comes straight out of the Scriptures. But as Luther tells the story of justification, it goes this way. It's, it's, it's kind of a romantic comedy, really. It's the Gospel story. He says, we all are like a bankrupt harlot. And a handsome young prince with infinite wealth comes to us and proposes marriage to us. And when we accept that proposal by faith, all that is ours becomes his and all that is his becomes ours. So he takes our shame and our guilt and our debt and he deals with it. And he cancels out our debts and he gives us a full line of credit. He declares us worthy and beautiful. He shares with us his own worth and status. And that's who we are in Christ Jesus. The church is Mrs. Christ. Mrs. Jesus Christ. We share in his name. We share in his status. All that is his, he shares with us, including his righteousness, his right standing before the Father. But now imagine this scenario. 
The man gets down on his knees to promote, propose marriage, and he pulls out the ring, and in response, she pulls out her checkbook, and she says, oh yes, what a pretty ring, it's so lovely, how much do I owe you for it? There's, there's no gift she can give, there's no, ch- of course she's bankrupt, there's no, any check she writes is going to bounce, but she doesn't understand, she's missed the whole point. It's not really the, the ring, it's love. Well, no, you can't buy love. We can't buy what God is offering us in Christ. The only way to get it is to receive it freely by faith. But see, the Pharisees are thinking, oh, we can buy God's favor. The Pharisee is thinking, I can earn the ring. I don't want to receive the ring as a gift. I want to buy it. I want to pay my own way rather than admit that I am actually bankrupt. And I need a gift of righteousness that comes from outside of me. See, the identity that we receive in Christ truly liberates us. And you need to see, this offer of justification is for anyone and everyone. If a tax collector, you know, the bottom of the moral rung, so to speak, if a tax collector can be justified, anyone can be justified. This story means there is always hope for the wretched, for the broken, for the scandalous. You cannot out God's grace. You can never run so far away from God that He can't catch up with you, find you, and bring you back home. It does not matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from. Call out for God's mercy and God will give you Christ as an answer. Ask God to justify you and He will give you the justice of Christ. Ask God for righteousness and He will give you the righteousness of Jesus. Justification means you are who God says you are. There's nothing deeper or more real or more powerful than God's Word over you. The Word God speaks over your life. And if God says you are righteous, then it is settled. These are the questions Isaiah asks in Isaiah 50. We read this morning. They're echoed by Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8. If God says you're righteous, that settles it. Who's going to accuse you? Who can condemn you? Who cares what anyone else thinks? The matter is settled. A justified man is confident. Indeed, he is fearless. Because when God has justified you, who is there to condemn? The verdict is rendered. The court is adjourned. The trial is over. Your status is settled. This justification by faith, this is the good news of the Gospel. Why is justification by faith? Well, faith here simply means accepting God's acceptance of you. Affirming God's affirmation of you. It's accepting that what God says about you is true. It's trusting that His declaration is real, that it's right. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, you're still a sinner? Sure. And if God says we're righteous, then we have to ask, well, what do we say about our sin? Are Christians still sinners? Luther used the formula, we are simultaneously righteous and sinful, simultaneously justified and sinners. And of course, Luther was right. Christians do still sin. First John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We do sin. We acknowledge that truth every week liturgically when we get down on our knees and confess our sins. But this is what we need to understand. God's justification 
means that His Word, His declaration over us, defines us, not our sin. You don't belong to the category of sinner anymore. You belong to the category of the righteous. Yes, you still sin. But those sins don't determine your identity. Don't argue with God. When God says you're righteous, you should say, Amen. I believe it. You know that God delights in you in Christ Jesus right now. I'll just tell you, one of the hardest jobs I have as a pastor, one of the hardest aspects of the pastor's job is convincing non-Christians that God is angry with them and convincing Christians that God delights in them. But it's true. If you are in Christ Jesus, God loves you and God rejoices in you the same way He loves and rejoices in His Son. You've been united in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You are righteous in Christ Jesus. Now that is what we could call the psychology of justification. How it impacts our identity. But we also need to talk about what we could call the sociology of justification. How this doctrine shapes community. How it determines the shape of the church. In the parable Jesus gives us here in Luke 18, the tax collector went home justified that day. He went to his own home, no doubt, but he really had a new home a new family, a new kingdom and empire to represent. No longer representing Caesar, but now representing the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got a new heavenly Father who loves him to go along with this new status he's been given. Luke opens the parable with the comment that Jesus told this story to those who trusted in themselves and despised others. And those two things go together. They justified themselves and they condemned others. This is the way of the Pharisees. Self-justification, others' condemnation. And this is an incredibly common dynamic because these things go together. This is an incredibly common dynamic to justify the self and to despise others. It, it, It tears apart families and societies and churches. It is the source of sibling rivalries and all kinds of contentions. Men will do all kinds of evil against one another in seeking to overcome their guilt and justify themselves. Indeed, in the end, the one that the self-justifying Pharisees really despise is Jesus Himself. This is why they ultimately condemn Him to be crucified. Jesus is their brother, a fellow Jew. But they crucify Jesus in order to justify themselves. They have to condemn God, ultimately. Self-justification always leads to the hatred of others. It will lead you to have contempt for others. Even as you are trying to justify yourself, perhaps by your good works, on behalf of others, you are despising others. Because quite frankly, when you seek to justify yourself, the easiest way to do that is to look down on others. One of the easiest ways to prop yourself up and feel better about yourself is to look down on others. And there is a self-righteous Pharisee in each of our hearts that is quick to justify the self and quick to condemn others even if they are committing the exact same sins we do. Because remember what I said last week, humans are not so much rational creatures as we are rationalizing creatures. We can always make excuses for ourselves. We're very clever at finding ways to justify the self. 
We can be Pharisees even towards other Pharisees. We can pray, God, I thank You I'm not like that self-righteous Pharisee over there. I thank You I'm not like that legalist over there. I understand justification by faith. I know the five points of Calvinism. I, I, I. It's the same thing. We can get self-righteous over anything, even our understanding of grace. We can make anything a grounds for justifying ourselves and condemning others. And when we do, it's like pouring acid over the community. It just disintegrates relationships. Self-righteousness is antithetical to self-giving love. That's what we need to see. Quite frankly, this is what Peter did in Galatians 2. We read this passage this morning in Galatians 2. Galatians 2 is just an outworking of this very truth, that those who seek to justify themselves will condemn others. What is Peter doing in Galatians 2? He's an apostle for crying out loud. How can he get the Gospel so wrong? Well, he has reverted back to looking for his identity in his Jewishness rather than in Christ. He sought his identity and therefore his community in his Jewishness and in works of Torah, works of the law. And the result, as Paul pointed out to him and confronting him to his face, the result was a disastrous denial of the gospel and division in the church. What had Peter done? He had separated from Gentile Christians. He stopped eating with them. He created a a, a Jewish-only version of the Lord's table, which could not be the Lord's table because the Lord's table is for all who are in Christ. Whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, black or white, young or old. Here's another way to look at the same thing. In our attempts to justify ourselves, we compare ourselves to others. That's really what the Pharisee is doing in the parable. His whole prayer is about comparing himself to others, to the adulterers and the extortioners, and of course to the tax collector. The reality is comparing ourselves to others in pride always leads to disaster. Others become threats to our own standing and to our desire for glory and relationships become a kind of tug of war, a zero-sum game in which you either win or lose by seeing yourself either as better or worse than others. If you win the comparison, well, then you become arrogant. If you lose the comparison, well, then you become hopeless. Pride-driven comparisons always turn brothers into enemies. You know what we're doing when we compare? It's like asking mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? We're asking mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most righteous of them all? And if anybody else shows up in the mirror, then that person is a rival and an enemy who must be torn down. This is what drives so many sins. Uh, jealousy and envy and gossip and contempt. You're going to have contempt for others if you are seeking to prove yourself as more worthy or more righteous. The self-righteous person looks at others and says, I'm better than you because... And then fill in that blank however you want. It really doesn't matter. It might be because I'm a better Christian because I pray more. I'm more righteous than you because I recycle more than you do. I'm a better Christian than you because I've read these books and I raise my kids this way and you don't. It does not matter. However you fill in that blank, it's going to lead you to have contempt for others. But the flip side of this 
is that when we rest in God's justifying mercy in Christ, we are freed from the comparison game. And so now we can live in harmony with others. We can be comfortable with people who are less righteous or less mature than ourselves. We're okay being around them and we're not... We're not just going around condemning them. We're seeking to encourage them and help them along. And we can actually also be very comfortable around people who are more mature and more righteous than us because it's not about being, it's not about making yourself superior to everybody else. See, when you seek to justify yourself, you cannot possibly be self-forgetful. Instead, you become more and more self-absorbed. That's how Luther describes sin. Sin is becoming curved in on yourself. It's this obsession with the self. But... When you rest in God's justification, you can forget about yourself and focus on others. You can become truly humble. You can have compassion instead of contempt. This kind of humility is not just low self-esteem. You know, when the world says if, if you know people do bad things for two reasons, either they have too low of a self self-esteem or they have too high self-esteem. Okay, the Scripture does away with that whole dynamic altogether because it's simply not about the self. C.S. Lewis makes this point when he says that the humble man is not a man who thinks less of himself, but who thinks of himself less. You're just not thinking of yourself all that much because you're so focused on others. The way you know that you're living out your justification by faith is how you treat the sinner. This is really what I think this parable shows us. How would you treat a tax collector who showed up here this morning. And I don't mean a modern day IRS agent. That's not the same thing. We might be tempted to condemn them or have contempt for them. But that's a whole different deal. I'm just saying anybody who you are tempted to have contempt for, how would you view that person if they showed up in church one Sunday? Do we make room in our community for sinners? Not condoning their sin. There has to be repentance. And you see that in this story too. There has to be repentance. God accepts us as we are, but He doesn't let us stay that way. But the question here is, could you love the tax collector in your life? Again, not approving of any immorality because that's really not love. But the justified person, the justified by faith person, can love sinners. He can love those he disagrees with. He can express his disagreement. And he's going to do so in love. But because he has experienced God's charity, he becomes charitable. Justification by faith leads us to welcome others even as God has welcomed us. And so this doctrine of justification by faith creates and builds and sustains community. It nourishes unity and diversity in the church. It really compels the church to go out and and, and carry out the mission that Christ has given to us of taking the good news to the nation. And so it's been rightly said Paul's vision of justification by faith inspired the theological vision of Martin Luther and the sociological vision of Martin Luther King. Justification by faith creates a new kind of community. Justification is not just about salvation. It's about the shape of the church. The shape of the church as God's new creation family, the church as the global family God promised to Abraham, bringing together every tribe, language, people, and nation into an international covenant community, a covenant family. Justification answers not only the question, how can sinners be right with God, but also the question, who should we share the supper with? And the answer is, all who are in Christ Jesus by faith. 
God invites the justified, whatever baggage they might have, to His table. And so how dare we put up any obstacles between them and what Jesus is offering them. In fact, it's so interesting in Luke's Gospel. It's as if this parable is kind of crystallizing what's happening in the rest of Luke's Gospel. Jesus here is telling a story about the story Luke is telling. In Luke's Gospel, before this and after this, we meet a lot of tax collectors. And we always find Jesus eating and drinking with the tax collectors, like Levi, who becomes Matthew the Apostle, and Zacchaeus. We find stories about prodigal sons coming home, about prostitutes. All kinds of people who would have been identified and labeled as sinners, but they come to Jesus and they find God's mercy. They find God's mercy to forgive their sin and they find God's mercy to repent of their sin. And so there is a new status and there's transformation and all of this now taking place in the context of this new community Jesus is forming around Himself. So again, justification by faith compels us to carry out our mission, to do evangelism, to seek after the straying sheep. To go and build and grow the church. Justification by faith alone, you could say, gives rise to fellowship by faith alone. To friendship by faith alone. It was socially revolutionary in the first century. It was socially revolutionary in the 16th century. And it can be socially revolutionary in our day as well. Think about all the divisions we see out in the world around us. This is the answer. This is the answer to our classism and our racism. The classism and racism that stain our society. This is the answer to the divisions and factions we find even in our churches. This teaching, justification, life. Well, finally, let me talk about joy. Let me take just a minute to do this. Here we could consider this to be the eschatology of justification. This is where it all leads to in the end. The joy of justification. And I've kind of mentioned this here, you know, even though it's maybe not directly in the parable, but without mentioning this, I think this parable could be misunderstood. Consider the tax collector here. This tax collector is broken. In the language of Psalm 51, he's offering to God the sacrifices of a broken and contrite Heart. He's even using the words of Psalm 51 in his prayer to God. He is a broken man. He's beating his chest as if to say, my problem is in here inside of me. And certainly there is a place in the Christian life for that kind of self-examination, that kind of brokenness, that kind of contrition. And we do have to keep going back there again and again because we sin again and again. But don't think that that is the whole of the life of the justified. How does the parable end with this man who has humbled himself in brokenness and contrition, now exalted? He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but now he's been raised to the heavenlies through Christ Jesus. He has humbled himself. Now the Lord has exalted him. And that exaltation means joy. Joy unspeakable and a peace that passes understanding. Justification by faith is the key that unlocks the door to unending joy. This is the doorway to an eternal and everlasting joy. Yes, we do have to beat our chests in brokenness. Yes, we kneel in contrition. But we move on from there to the joy of standing before God in glory, of raising our hands to heaven, knowing 
that God has accepted us, knowing that God loves us with the same love He has for His Son, knowing that we are secure in the Son. And you see this movement from brokenness to joy, from humility to exaltation, from contrition to peace, again and again in the Scriptures. Just read the Psalms and you will see this play out again and again. So many of the Psalms tell this story where it starts off with David down in the dumps. And he's humbled himself and he's a broken man. And it ends with David rejoicing and he's so ecstatic, so filled with joy, he can't wait to tell everybody else about it. You see it in the lives of Peter and of Paul. as They move from despair over their sin to great joy and forgiveness. This was the story of Luther. You already know the story of how Luther moved from despair and gloom over his sin to the very gates of paradise, he says, when he grasps this teaching. But it's not just Luther. There is story after story after story in church history that captures this same dynamic, this movement from brokenness to wholeness in Christ Jesus, from sorrow to rejoicing. See, when you become a justified man, you learn joy in a new way. You learn to laugh. And quite honestly, the first thing you learn to laugh at is yourself. You stop taking yourself so seriously. Let me give you one other example of this. Since we've got Luther, we've, we've talked about Luther's story before, let me give you one other example of this to wrap this up. William Tyndall made the same joyful discovery that Luther had made a few years later. Luther was in England, Tyndale in Germany, but he made the same joyous discovery of justification by faith. It led him to seek to translate the Bible into English for the common man to read. He said, this news is too good for us to keep to ourselves. We've got to get it out. Everybody needs to know this. He says this. This is uh, how he describes the joy-bringing power of the Gospel. It says the evangelion, that's the Greek word for gospel. He said it signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make a man's heart glad and make him sing and dance and leap for joy. It says, now can the wretched man, the man who is wrapped in his sin and who is in danger of death and hell, can he hear no more joyous a thing than such glad and comfortable tidings of Christ? Is there any better news for a sinner than this? God's free offer of forgiveness and justification in Christ. And so Tyndall says when he hears this news, he cannot but be glad and laugh from the low bottom of his heart if he believes that the tidings are true. Justification makes you joyful. Justification makes you laugh and skip and dance with joy. Justification gives you laughter in the low bottom, in the very depths of your heart. In the heart of your hearts, there is laughter. Because you know this good news that God has accepted. Yes, this tax collector starts off in the story broken and sorrowing, but you can bet the tax collector laughed and skipped and danced all the way home because he went home a justified man. You can bet he had laughter in the low bottom of his heart, the laughter Tyndall talks about, because the Gospel makes us glad. Justification leads to joy. C.S. Lewis said this of the Protestant reformers. He says, whatever they were, they were not sour or gloomy or severe, nor did their enemies bring any such charge against them. For example, Thomas More said a Protestant is one who is drunk with the new wine of the Gospel full of gladness in his heart. And so Lewis says, Protestantism was not too grim, but too glad to be true. 
Justification is too glad to be true. It's too good to be true. Justification is joy. It's the joy of the beggar who gets invited to the king's feast to sit at his table. It's the joy of the bankrupt bride marrying a bridegroom with infinite riches. It's the joy of a condemned criminal not only given pardon, but new power, new status, new freedom, new glory. It's the joy of the dead who have been made alive. The joy of the blind who have been given their sight. It's the joy of those who are full of shame who now find honor and glory. It's the joy of those who are despairing, who are now assured of hope. It's the joy of God. It's the joy of God's Son shared with us. And so rejoice. Rejoice today. Go home with joy. Go home laughing, dancing, skipping. Because you're justified. You go home justified today. Jesus is sending you home justified. So go home with joy. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for the joy of the Gospel. We thank You for the approval that we have in Christ Jesus that leads us to this joy and, and, and peace. A joy beyond words. A peace that passes understanding. We thank You for this acceptance that we have in Christ Jesus that leads us to the table of joy, the table of feasting in Your presence with all Your people. A cheerful feast of bread and wine. A sign that You accept us into Your presence. We thank You for Christ Jesus, our Savior, our righteousness, our King. In His name, we pray these things, giving You thanks and praise. Amen.